1 and then 6, the verses 1 to 14. This is in connection with Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 24, in which we will be discussing our good works in relation to our righteousness before God. So here in uh, Romans chapter 5, we come across Paul preaching peace with God through faith. He's already been speaking about how the whole world stands condemned before God and talks about God's absolute requirements for his law. And then he reminds us that we have a righteousness that comes through faith, saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely dare for, scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And in this next section, I want you to pay special attention to the language of gift as opposed to wage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was was in the world before the law was given, but Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The Word of God. Let's now respond to the reading of God's Word by the singing of Psalm 63 through Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism, reflecting on our good works. And you'll be able to find that on page 538 of your book of praise. So in Lord's Day 23, it's been going through how we can receive the righteousness of Christ and make it our own by faith only, and that's the only way that we can stand before God. Lord's Day 24 continues this line of reasoning and asks, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness, righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect, and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No. It is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, This coming week, I have a challenge for you. I want you to ask somebody in your life, do you think that you're going to go to heaven? 
and see what their answer is. There will be a few different types of responses to this. There will be, of course, the ones who say, oh, I'm, I think I'm going to hell, but I'm okay with that, because that's where the party is. I don't want to be up in heaven with all those goody-two-shoes types. These people clearly have no idea of what hell actually is, nor do they have an idea of what heaven actually is. But these people aside, there are many people in our world today that whether they realize it or not, they measure their righteousness before God by the amount of good things that they do. And that's not just limited to those who are outside of the church, but also those who are inside the walls quite often. Our passage today here says, in in Romans 5, verse 9, it says, Since therefore uh, we have been justified, so having been justified, legally declared righteous, having been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from wrath. We have been legally declared righteous before God because of Christ's blood, if we believe in him. And so we have been saved by God's wrath. Not by works, but by Christ's blood, salvation is given to us as a free gift. This is something that, as, as many of us, as Reformed people who have been raised in the church, born and raised in the church, this is something that we're very familiar with. We confess it with our mouths. But our hearts sometimes take a moment to catch up. And this can make itself known in two ways. First, we have those who say, even within our own church boundaries, maybe even we have this rising up in our own hearts, we have those who say, I'm a pretty good person. God would let me into heaven. They consider themselves to be more righteous before God because of their good works. And second, you have those who say, I'm not a good enough person. And I don't think that God would let me into heaven. Or at least, I'm not sure if God's going to let me into heaven. It might be that it's not that I don't think God will let me into heaven, but I'm not sure if God will let me into heaven. And they think that they're less righteous before God because of their lack of good works. But in both of these cases, they're measuring righteousness by the good works that they're doing. And there's a problem with this line of thinking. The problem is that it tosses all of the responsibility of our salvation back onto ourselves. And that's a bigger burden than any human being is able to bear. It becomes a reason for false pride and false boasting on the one hand, or else it plunges us into a life of constant guilt, constant self-recrimination, and shame. But God has something much better in mind for us. Our good works, he declares, our good works are not a way to gain God's approval, but rather our good works are evidence of God's grace already at work within us. And today we'll look at this under the following theme and points. All boasting aside will be our theme. And the first, we'll look at the best of our good works. Second, the source of our good works. And third, the reason for our good works. So the best of our good works, the source of our good works, and the reason for our good works. 
When we start with the phrase, I'm a pretty good person, or I'm not sure I'm a good enough person, in a conversation about whether or not we're going to heaven, we're showing that we have a deeply flawed understanding of our works in relation to God. And the first problem that we run into is that when we use this kind of language, we show that we clearly don't have a proper understanding of God's standard. God's standard is perfection. God's standard is immovable. God is a holy God and He's infinite in His perfection. And so it's no surprise that His standard is perfection either, is it? But that's where we run into trouble. The Apostle Paul points this out quite clearly when he's talking about the purpose of the law in 5 verse 20. God didn't give us the law so that we can stand as righteous before Him, Paul tells us here. He didn't give it to us so that we can check off all those boxes and then be good enough people in His sight. The law has only one purpose, Paul says. Only one purpose. To make us uncomfortably aware of when we cross the line. This is not to say that Man didn't cross the line before the law was received. The law was already written on the hearts of man. Paul speaks about that in Romans 1. But God specifically introduced the law to his people to highlight their shortcomings. The law is like a fence line with a security tower and a spotlight. Trespassing on somebody else's property is already wrong. It's already wrong. But if you try to climb over a fence in the dead of night, and then a spotlight shining down from a tower hits you, lighting you up, then you know you've been caught doing wrong. This is what he's saying in verse 20 when he tells us, the law entered so that the offense might abound. Or here, the law came in to increase the trespass. It becomes vividly clear to us When we measure our our lives in relation to God's law, when we measure it in relation to God's word, then it becomes vividly clear to us as we go through it day by day that we cross the boundaries of God's will for us a whole lot more than we think we do. But it's not just the bad things that are highlighted so clearly. Even the things we do that we consider are good are lit up for what they actually are when we compare them to God's word. They're lit up where they're done from less than perfect motives. And that would be all of them apart from Christ. Consider the idea of trespassing again. Going back to that for a moment. Johnny's a pretty good kid, you might say. You can see it by the fact that he takes cookies to grandma. So the fact that he trespasses a little bit isn't such a big deal. You might be tempted to agree with that statement, but what about Johnny, the pretty good kid, who when he's taking his cookies to grandmother, takes a bolt cutter to the chain link fence so that he can take a shortcut through the security zone at the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant? He might be doing something good, taking cookies to grandmother. But the very fact that he's taking a bolt cutter to the fence to do so makes us painfully aware of his heart problem. 
The fact that he's trespassing all the more is highlighted by that fence. Even if he is going to grandmother's house, you'd have little sympathy for him when the spotlight hits him and the alarm bells go off. This is the relation between our own good works and God's desires of us apart from His mercy. And this is something that people already recognized in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 64 verse 6 of his points of his book, points out that the best works that we have, the best works of themselves, note this is not after God's done with them, but of themselves, our best works are no more than filthy rags. But even if, say there, say there was one good work that you could do that, that was completely perfect apart from Christ. Even if there was one good work that you could do that was perfect, that wouldn't help us out at all. Jesus Christ himself points out in Luke 17 verse 10 that at best we're only servants carrying out our duty if we do good works, if we do them perfectly. And that's what makes the gospel so amazing. It's not a question of me being a pretty good person or me being not a good enough person. If that was the case, considering the standard of God, we would all be lost, be hopeless. As Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. No exceptions. All sinned. But the gospel points us beyond ourselves to Christ. The gospel takes a huge burden off of our shoulders to know that God forgives us of this, forgives us of our wrong motives, forgives us of the things that we have done wrong for the sake of Christ. We don't have this impossible bar to measure up to. Christ has already done this. And all we need is faith in Christ to have this perfection applied to our lives. That's what the Apostle Paul goes on to point out in the rest of verse 25, verse 20. He says, The law entered that sin might abound. The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law was given so that a spotlight could be shone on our failing. But that having been done, now that it's been exposed and you've been caught in the spotlight, grace abounds all the more through Jesus Christ. This is a comfort, beloved. Some of us may have it that we read the Word of God. And as we're going through the Word of God, we feel so convicted by it that we'd rather just close it, put it up on a shelf, and walk away. Leave it gathering dust. Because, man, it makes me feel awful. I feel so exposed by it. But when the Word of God 
shines a spotlight on your need. Don't cringe away from it. When you have your insufficiencies pointed out by God, remember, the point is not to have you run away. Rather, the reason they are exposed is not so that you can run back into the dark, but so that you can submit them to Him. Praying in repentance for forgiveness and see His grace towards you, abounding all the more as He transforms you from the inside out. And this brings us to our second point, the source of our good works. Now, not all Christians are content with burying themselves in this way before the Almighty God. Even in the sight of the shortcomings of good works that we actually do, there are sadly those who still hang on to their good works as something they want to hold up to God, as something that they've done in order to gain entry into heaven, or at least in order to gain favor before God. The picture that they give is this. There's a kingdom of heaven, and I'm a government worker in that kingdom working on behalf of the king. I'm doing good work on behalf of the king, and so I get paid. Anything that I get, I earned. But is that the proper picture to have when it comes to the kingdom of heaven? Really? Is that what Paul means when he says here in uh, 5 verse 17, For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, what does God say about our good works? For that, I want you to open together with me, open Ephesians 2 for a moment, to see how Paul expands on this in that letter. Ephesians chapter 2. Keep a finger in Romans 5, but open to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Verses 8 to 10. This, by the way, is a good passage to memorize. Write it down on a cue card. Take it with you in the car. Stick it to kitchen cupboard or something. It's a good passage to memorize for, for many reasons, this being, among, this being one of them. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, we read here, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Reading that, we see it right there, wiping away any idea that we might have of having earned something, doesn't it? You see, a wage is something that you get for giving a service. That's what Paul is talking about in in Romans. He says a wage is something you get for giving a service. But if you're receiving salvation as a gift, it is a gift of God, then God is pointing out to you that your service in itself was not part of the transaction. It was not you doing a job and then God giving something in return. Because, remember, as we heard in, Paul's, in Romans 5, it wouldn't be a gift anymore if that was the case. It would be a wage. It would be something we earn, that we work for and we earn. 
Consider the man who is weak in his faith, trembling at his own unworthiness before God, who goes no further than that. All he sees is his own unworthiness and nothing else beyond that. Such a man has not come to understand the point that is brought out in our passage today. His salvation is not a wage. It's a gift, a free gift. It doesn't rely on what he has to do. It relies on God giving it freely. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there in verse 8. He goes on. He says, your salvation, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the person who was thinking that he or she has stood firm for so long in difficult times, and therefore God owes him or her a little something in response, I've been having difficulties with my wife, and I have stood firm. I've put up with so much, so much coming my way. With my parents, I have stood firm. With my siblings, they've been treating me in this way, and I have stood firm for so long. God, you owe me something. God says, you're boasting in your own righteousness if you figure that God owed you something for all your hard work. You're declaring that it's not a gift. And yet, God teaches us here that it is a gift. And it's deliberately described as a gift to take away away all potential for boasting on the part of man. So then the question arises, why aren't my gifts then something that I can do to hold up to God and say, I've done this, so you owe me? Well, that's cleared up in the following verse. It's because God Himself was the one who prepared these works for us to do in advance in the first place. That's the point that the Apostle Paul ends on here. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, any good works that we do are because of God Himself. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. James says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no change like shifting shadows. So it's no surprise if God is that overflowing fountain of all good. It's no surprise then that He's the source of any good that comes out of me or you either, is it? So what does this mean for us? When you have these days in which you feel that God is measuring you by your works, whether by feeling pretty good about yourself or whether by feeling bad about yourself, you're saying that what you are doing is a payment 
And if you're not doing enough, then God might take salvation back. But God says, no. Salvation is my free gift to you. Good works are works that I prepared in advance for you to do. Our works, then, do not become something by which we measure our right standing in the eyes of God. But our good works become the opportunity for God to show His goodness to the world through us. God, the source of all good, is showing His goodness through, to the world through us. That's a beautiful thing to consider, isn't it? When we do anything good, it's it's not a reason for boasting. It's a reason to praise God because He gave me the amazing privilege of having Him work something good in this world through me. I'm doing these things, it's true. I'm, I'm not a puppet on strings. But God is the one who has opened the way for me to do them. He was the one who gave me a new heart. And He gave me the resources and the strength to do these good things. He is the one who by His mercy has changed me into a new person in Christ. And now the things that I do are truly a result of His work in me. God is working to touch the world for good through me. This brings us to the third point. The reason for our good works. It's at this point that frustration sets in for some people. There is the person who is working hard to to be good before God and realizes that his or her good works don't add up to anything. They don't count towards anything. You're not building a credit score in the eyes of God. And so this Christian throws up the hands and says... What's the point of good works then? And this Christian would be in good company. Well, good. They, they would be in company. This Christian would not be alone. The Christian city, citizens in the city of Rome who received Paul's letter had this exact same question arise in their hearts. What's the point? What's the point of me doing good works? Paul anticipates their question, their objection, and he lays it out in chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans again here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If my doing good things doesn't help my credit score before God, and if my doing bad things increases God's display of mercy and grace, what's the point of doing good things? Doesn't it mean that if I do more bad things, more good things won't count against me, and I do more bad things, and and God shows His mercy to the world more? Paul, they're saying, let me take your argument to its extreme conclusion. Should I keep on doing bad things so that God's grace overflows? Certainly not, Paul says. We died to sin, 6 verse 2 and following. We died to sin. Do you know what dying to sin means? It means that we are united to Christ. 
joined to Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And it means that an old part of us was carved out because of Christ's death. Our righteousness came at that cost. Sometimes sometimes we become so used to hearing about Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross that it just becomes another phrase. He, He was crucified and he died for my sins. But think about it for a moment. The agony. He was crucified for my sins. Our righteousness came at a cost. If this is true, how could we continue in sin? And we're not talking first and foremost, by the way, about struggling in sin and, and falling back here. About this, the sin that you're waging war against and you find yourself slipping again and again and again. And it's, it's so frustrating. In case you're beating yourself up over the things that you're struggling with and slide back into. Paul here is not talking about that. Paul here is talking about sins that we hang on to when we know better. Sins that we hang on to because we want the other person to repent first. Or because secretly we like it. Or because it's helpful to us for some reason. We get an advantage out of it for some reason. Or any other reason. And we see this, that... that That's Paul's focus in verse 12, where he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. He's speaking about those sins which you are letting reign in your body freely. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? That's only asking, this sin that I'm hanging on to, that I should let go, can I keep hanging on to it? Christ died. In Him, you died to that sin. It would be ungrateful to continue in it, Paul says. That being said, however, fear of being ungrateful is not what should motivate us today. All that it should motivate us to do is not to continue willfully in sin. Not to be okay with sin. But if we let let fear of being ungrateful be our motivator, if we let guilt be our only motivator, we'll quickly find out that it's an absolutely rubbish motivator. It works for about three seconds and then it leaves everybody else involved feeling absolutely miserable for the next three days. Guilt might help you quit something, but it can never be the fuel that keeps the engine running. You husbands and wives, you're you're probably familiar with this. You hopefully know how ineffective it is to guilt trip your spouse into doing something. Parents, you hopefully know how ineffective it is to guilt trip your children into doing things. 
we know that guilt alone is not a useful motivator. Praise God that that's not how He works in us. Yes, God makes us know of our guilt and of our sin. He makes it vividly clear to us. But He never continues to hold our guilt against us. He only uses it to show where we were. And then He reminds us of where we have been brought in Christ. So, what should motivate us then? In the previous Lord's days, in Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. That is what motivates us. As Paul says and reminds us of in 6 verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Really believing this, really believing this, that you are not under law, but you are under grace. This brings a life that is dominated by one word. Thankfulness. If you really do have true faith, then you will be thankful. You won't want to do the things that are sinful. And when you do things that are sinful, or see a desire for sin rising up, wanting to do sin rising up in you, then that grieves you and you hate it. Because you know how good you have it with Christ and you know that it hurts Him. This isn't a question of guilt tripping. Rather, it's the same kind of motivation that stirs a child who loves and who appreciates and who respects their parents to listen to them and not want to let them down. You don't doubt their love or think that their love will lessen because you do wrong. Your desire not to let them down because you love them. Your desire to have them delight in you because you love them is what motivates you. Your thankfulness to them for their parental love towards you and your knowledge of their unwavering steadfastness as your parent. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know you have been adopted as a child of God. You have been brought into a new life. You're secure in His love. But out of thankful love, you still strive to please Him as much as possible. And here's a really special thing to know. In Him, you can please Him. you know that you can please Him. Not as one who's earning a right to live with Him, but as a child who delights His Father by simply being His child and wanting to please Him. But what about our good works? Our best works? Being no more than filthy rags, you might ask. Well, the same God who saves you washes you clean of sin and stain, including the guilt that comes with less than perfect good works. Psalm 149 verse 4 shows us the result of this. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. 
in Christ our good works are perfected. Note it's still a gift from Him and still no reason for us to boast, but it does mean that they are a reason for Him to rejoice. And He does. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So, Beloved of God. God doesn't lead you to say, I'm a pretty good person. Nor does He lead you to say, I'm not a good enough person. I'm not sure I'm a good enough person. But rather, He leads you to say, all boasting aside, in Christ I am righteous before God, and I am heir to life everlasting. Any good works I do, Because God, any good works that I do, I do because God has given me the opportunity to do them. And He is showing His goodness to the world through them. And He delights in me when I do them. And so I'm going to take advantage of that. And I am going to do them with all my heart. Amen. Our response of praise to God.